Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The real reason that farmers don't value black sheep is because a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. Uh, so in effect, every black sheep is 100% authentically original. And when I heard that and knowing the generations of people who have grown up feeling like a black sheep for whatever particular reason that they're an outcast. The truth is uh, that they should be aspiring to be that 100% authentic original they were created to be. And uh, that sort of was the, the beginning for me of doing a deep dive into defining what I call your flock of five non-negotiable black sheep values. Those are the values that no matter how much someone wants to influence you or try to change you, they simply won't be moved like a black sheep's wool. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Grant, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. I was introduced to you by way of our former guest, Jeffrey Shaw. And when he told me that you had a book called Black Sheep that made it seem like a, it was a very good thing to be a black sheep, I thought, yep, this guy is speaking my language. I definitely want to have him as a guest on the show. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced or shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Mm. You know, I, I grew up uh, as an athlete, um, highly, highly competitive. And, you know, one of the things I think I really learned that is from my father that has served me very well. Um, so this, this whole notion of it's, it's not whether you win or lose. Um, I, I, 
can see that a little bit, but for, for me and for my father, it wasn't whether we win or lose. It was, do you want to win? Mm-hmm. And as long as you want to win, um, it doesn't matter if you win or not, but when you approach it, you have to approach it in that way. And that's sort of how I have approached everything in my career, both athletically, uh, with music and now here with books and speaking is, you know, I, I want to win no matter what it is that I'm doing, whether or not I do, that's something different, but I always approach it with the mindset of, um, not only do I want to win, I want to crush. And that's sort of, uh, how it's been. So I, I have to ask you, where has that been a detriment and where has that been a success? Because I think often when we want to win, when we want to get ahead, uh, one of the things that happens is a detach or an attachment to an outcome. Mm. And I think, you know, pretty much as we know from damn near every spiritual text and every book we've ever read, um, you know, attachment to outcomes often can be detrimental to our ability to actually achieve an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that was part of the big learn in writing this book is that, uh, the hardest, the hardest piece for me to swallow being a control freak was that we don't control outcomes, period. Um, the best you can hope for is the deliberate intention that goes into making a decision. But un- unless you're a wizard uh, or possess some sort of uh, a power that I am unaware of, uh, you cannot control outcomes. And so for me, it really helped in understanding that the best case scenario for me was honoring the things that mattered most to me and detaching completely from an outcome that was out of my control. Yeah. Um, well, before we go, go deeper into that, I want to go back to um, you being an athlete. One, what sport did you play? And what are the lessons from being an athlete that you have applied to your life going forward? Because I think that when I look back at, at sort of high school and, and junior high being sort of the, the shittiest player on my seventh grade basketball team, mm-hmm. you know, being an athlete was not for me, I thought. Um, but I also feel like I missed out on some invaluable lessons that come from playing team sports. You know, I, I grew up um, playing in an era where we played the sport of the season, right? And so it wasn't like it is today. Today, they sort of force you into one particular sport and they want you to just focus all your energy on that. I, you know, I played soccer and football in the, uh, in the fall. I played baseball in the spring. In the winter, I played either basketball or ran track. Um, so I was constantly sort of playing whatever the, the sport of the season was. And um, that, I feel like that's a much better approach. It, it not only allows you to be a more well-rounded athlete uh, and expose you to different uh, aspects of team sports, but it also uh, physically allows your body to mature in a, in a more well-rounded, holistic way, as opposed to doing, you know, if, if I only focused on baseball, it's why we see kids coming out of high school having Tommy John surgery because they've only done one thing for the last four or five years of their life. And they've actually uh, hurt themselves in the process by too much repetitive motion. And so this idea that you're able to use different muscles using different sports um, is something that I think is lost on this generation. Mm -hmm. What about in terms of of sort of social skills, communication, relationship Mm -hmm. building? I mean, I'd imagine playing on a team is an incredible bonding experience. And also, were you one of these people that was sort of destined to go pro or, or be, you know, a college athlete? Or were you somebody who was just good? No, I, I, so I was all state in, in almost every sport, uh, that, that I played. Um, and, uh, so for me, it was, uh, not just about being good. It was about being the best. And if I, if I didn't think I could be the best, then I didn't want to play that sport. And so, um, there, you know, team sports, uh, for me was fine, 
but my role on that team was what was most important to me and leading that team was most important to me. Um, so, you know, while I didn't play an individual sport like tennis or golf or something like that, where it's sort of you against either the course or one particular opponent, um, for me, there was always a team to back you up. Um, but I took my role on that team uh, as serious as possible. And so, you know, I, I was a college athlete. I was planning on playing professional baseball. I've sort of bred to play baseball. My dad um, is a very well-known pitching coach uh, in New England who has coached two Cy Young Award winners and multiple Hall of Famers. Um, and just uh, that, that was my plan. And then I got hurt. And when I got hurt, uh, I had to pivot and everything changed. And so my sophomore year of, of college, I had gone to Florida Southern to play baseball uh, after high school. Um, I just sort of had to make that that pivot to not being able to play any longer um, or I would risk losing mobility of my arm. And so that that was a tough time. Um, to tr- I never had another plan. I didn't want to be an architect or you know a, <laughs> a doctor or you name whatever it is that people are going to school for. I wanted to play ball, and so um, it was a it was a really difficult time of trying to discover what I thought the reason for me being on the planet actually was. Yeah, I I wonder is that sort of drive to win that seems almost inherent here. Do you think that's a, a byproduct of of the environment that you were raised in? I mean, having a dad that's a pitching coach, obviously genetics had to have played a role in that. Uh, but do you think that that is something that people can develop in themselves? And and you know, what role do you think you know background plays in all of that? Because I feel like too often we dismiss yeah. you know the role of genetics and background you know we had uh will store we just aired uh this guy he'd wrote a book called you know selfie how we've become so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us and i was going back and, and listening to it and he said he said we don't like the idea of you know the role that genetics and personality play he said but those things are incredibly important yeah yeah i agree and and not only that you know i think um we have ruined uh, a part of team culture where everybody gets a trophy. I, I, it makes me want to f- just vomit every time I think about it. Not everybody deserves a trophy for participating. Um, and it sets such a horrible example moving forward, uh, that you start to see it play itself out when they, when they get into the workforce, because they think just showing up and doing their job every day deserves a raise. Uh, that's the, that's the minimum. <laughs> that's just showing up and doing the work. That doesn't mean that, that it's worthy of more. And, um, when you grow up in a culture of everybody gets a trophy, they have a very difficult time, um, separating what they think they deserve from what's truly earned. And, uh, you know, my kids growing up, they, they knew it. There was no trophies being handed out unless they won. Um, and, and it helps you want to win. Uh, if you just got a trophy because you participated, why would you ever want to win? Um, it makes it really hard in those environments. And so I think that societally, uh, we have fostered, um, a, a culture of mediocrity that didn't exist in the eighties when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, cause I know people often talk about millennials being entitled and I see two types of people, you know, people who will, you know, do whatever the hell they have to, to get ahead and, you know, like yourself work as hard as they can, uh, and have this sort of drive to win. But then, you know, there's a sort of entitlement, like you said, of, oh, um, I should 
you know, get this thing that I want just because I'm showing up or just because I'm doing the work, I should, you know, be able to be recognized for it. And I remember Todd Henry once told me, he said, you know, attention for your work is not a birthright. It's something that you have to earn. Exactly. Exactly. Agree hundred percent. Yeah. I, so how do you get out of this mess? I mean, like for parents listening to this, what would you say to them uh, about, you know, raising children and this whole idea of not just having, you know, trophies for participation, but also at the same time, balancing that with not doing a great deal of damage to their self-esteem. Because I went through my whole life believing that I had zero athletic ability. And then I became a surfer. And I realized that, you know, I actually did have plenty of athletic ability. It was just not on a basketball court or on mm. a football field. Yeah. Well, so part of that is um, you were still sort of part of a culture that that encouraged multiple sports, right? And that's, that's a, it's been a, a bit, sort of not like that in this last generation, uh, Gen, Gen Z's anyways, have sort of grown up in this digital age where, um, they're sort of really f- from the college scholarships and what do you want to do is it's focus on that one sport and get as good as you possibly can at it rather than a more well-rounded approach and trying different things to see what you actually might be good at. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to try to ask someone, especially a, a, a kid, to focus on something when they haven't had enough life experience to know what they like and don't like. Um, but yeah. we sort of force them into these these roles that um, end up backfiring as they as they get older and and begin to you know be afraid to try new things, or uh, they just sort of are so insulated because of this fear of losing, you know, parents don't want their kids to be a loser losing builds character. If you don't know how to deal with losing, how are you going to deal when, when you fail that, that first time, uh, at work, when your boss asks you to do something and you, and it's just blows up in your face. If you've never had to deal with losing, uh, it really puts you at a disadvantage and, and, uh, you're a much more, uh, fragile, individual if you've never had to deal with those things that we have sort of eliminated uh, over the last decade or so of we don't want anybody to feel out of place. We don't want them to feel less than. Um, I think there are circumstances where it's important to experience those feelings um, because if you never learn how to deal with them, you are not equipped for the real world because Mm -hmm. not everybody wins. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one other question about sort of, uh, you know, this period in which you get injured, and this is something I've asked a lot of uh, pro athletes or, you know, people who are destined to be pro athletes. How do you recover a sense of identity when you have been on a path to go and do something for so long? Because I, I remember seeing this documentary about the NFL draft, and uh, I think, People go to some sort of training camp in Florida and they go to the combine. And one of the, the guys on it was, I think, you know, uh, <clears throat> the best quarterback in, in the state. He'd, you know, taken his team in college to a national championship and then he doesn't make it to the NFL. Uh, and so suddenly it's like the, the sort of rug has been pulled out from under you because your whole life sort of vanishes before your eyes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, it's, it took me 20, 20, almost 20 years. Uh, to figure it out, right? Because when your identity is wrapped up in what you do and not who you are, um, all the problems really start to happen. And so I never had those difficult conversations with myself to define who I truly was, what are the things that were my non-negotiables um, until I was 47 years old. And so, you know, for me, it makes it really, uh, looking back now, you know, I had a, a good decade or two of just trying to figure out who I was and what I truly cared about that, uh, if I would have done the work earlier, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I would be in a different place than I am today. I'd be even, even more successful on one side, um, more self-aware on the other. And, uh, who knows what, what that would have spun into if I would have figured this out 20 years sooner. Yeah. So uh, one of the, the things that you talk about in the book, which I, I knew I wanted to ask you about, was the possibility of losing a child, um, which I can't, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine 
anything as, as painful as that. Uh, talk to me about that experience and, you know, what you've learned from it and how you navigated it and, you know, what the benefits were when you came out of the other side. So, uh, here is the unfortunate truth is, um, you know, when, uh, my, my oldest son, Theo was diagnosed with cancer when he, uh, was 14 years old. Uh, he needed a bone marrow transplant in order to survive. And we went through this harrowing experience, you know, living in a hospital for 263 days while, while he was battling for his life, uh, in a situation that we were told was impossible. Um, we turned impossible into possible by opening it up to 500,000 people that saw a video on YouTube that were determined there was an answer that, that just hadn't been discovered yet. And we turned, um, a death sentence for him into life. And, you know, uh, he survived, he continued, um, to work through what that looks like. And in, February of this year, uh, we lost him to COVID. Oh, and I'm sorry about that. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the reality is, um, you know, when you have a child who is chronically ill and, um, seriously ill, it's a different type of hell that you live through, right? Because you're always wondering if today's the day is, is, mm. is it going to take a turn? And we lived that way for almost nine years and you know february comes around or january january comes around and he contracts covid and because of the damage to his lungs and everything else um he took a uh, took a turn and in a matter of a couple of weeks uh he was gone and so you know dealing with the reality of the loss now um it, it is, a, a, again, a different kind of hell, uh, one that is difficult as it was and as much as you weren't able to live your life in the way that you wanted to when you were always worried that things were going to get worse. When they do get worse, um, you know, you only want it to go back to to the difficulty of, of dealing with it every day when they're not here. So, you know, it's been uh, a crazy journey, uh, one that we're still trying to break the spiral of just spiraling down. And, and when your life is consumed with treatment and doctor's uh, appointments and, you know, you're, it, it is your life. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Um, thank God I know what my non-negotiables are now uh, because I can promise you I would be in uh, much worse shape than I am and uh even with that uh, you know i'm not in particularly good shape right now mentally um just dealing with the loss but i don't know how anyone would would be able to come out the other side if they didn't do the work to discover what their non-negotiables were and live their lives by them because there's too many other things swirling around my head right now that are easily uh distractions to to something much much worse you know mm, yeah so, you know, somebody once told me that, you know, when you, when you lose somebody you love, they say you don't ever actually get over it. Um, I think it was either my roommate's mom or somebody said, you know, even though she had lost a parent you yeah. know, 10, 15 years ago, she said, there's not a day that goes by that you don't think about that person. Right. Correct. Um, getting over is not the right, uh, phrase. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you you learn to move forward um but you will never get over it it is not uh that's not possible nor nor should it be the goal to be quite honest um you want to honor and cherish those memories and for me now the work that i do and the 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 talks that i go out are all part of theo's legacy you know he designed the cover of that book for me and um the lessons learned and and the whole concept of black sheep stemmed out of the the difficulties of dealing with this over the last nine years and um you know it's my job now to to honor that legacy so i don't ever want to get over it um i just want to be able to cope with it (laughs) as i think uh the best case scenario that anybody could really ask for Mm. so this is something I've asked people in one form or another. I mean, and I, I know this is super fresh, so feel yeah. free to to not answer the question. But sure. uh, I wonder, you know, with something as, you know, tragic as, as losing a child, uh, what decisions, you know, come out come out in terms of, of you know, how you're going to live your life going forward as a byproduct? Because I think, you know, we've had people who face near-death experiences and um, you know, I can't help but think of this essay that um, was in, there's an author, um, <clears throat> Tim Kreider, who, who wrote this collection of essays. And he talks about how he gets stabbed in the neck. And, you know, he says, you think that you're going to, you know, start making all these decisions and change the way that you live your life when you have this sort of tragic experience. And then, you know, a year or two later, you go back to sort of normal. But I wonder for you, mm-hmm. you know, what decisions you've made about your life going forward as a byproduct of losing your son. <sighs> So uh, there's a, I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is, is that, uh, in my experience of coaching people, dealing with thousands of different people, helping them discover their, their values, uh, I would, I would venture to guess without exaggerating that 99% of everyone on the planet is winging it. Um, they don't take the time to discover truly what their non-negotiable values are, prove that they're real and program them into their day to honor them with deliberate intention on a daily basis. The difference of what happens when you go through something like this is you have a choice to make. Are you going to allow the emotions to drive the bus, um, allow the hurt and uh, all of the things that you're feeling to take you off course and continue to wing it in your life. And hopefully you get through this in a way that is manageable. Or do you begin to act with deliberate intention? Do you begin to speak these things into existence on a daily basis, um, controlling when and where these values appear so that you feel like you're living a life of fulfillment in the face of the greatest loss you'll ever experience. And so I, I think that that's, um, the biggest change is that You've got to, to make a decision to live with deliberate intention. And if you mm-hmm. don't, the chances of you falling off into the, the abyss of depression and uh, being filled with PTSD and anxiety and all the other sorts of things that come along with a, a loss of this magnitude are almost insurmountable if you do not live your life with deliberate intention. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to talking about the ideas in the book. And uh, I wonder how you actually came up with with the term black sheep to to discuss this. Like what prompted that? Uh, I was 47 years old before somebody sat me down and explained to me why farmers don't actually value black sheep like the rest of the flock. And when I heard the, the truth, it just sort of rattled me at, 
to my core in such a way that I felt like I had to tell everybody about it. And so the real reason that farmers don't value black sheep is because a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. Uh, so in effect, every black sheep is 100% authentically original. And when I heard that and knowing the generations of people who have grown up feeling like a black sheep for whatever particular reason that they're an outcast, the truth is, uh, that they should be aspiring to be that 100% authentic original they were created to be. And uh, that sort of was the, the beginning for me of doing a deep dive into defining what I call your flock of five non-negotiable black sheep values. Those are the values that no matter how much someone wants to influence you or try to change you, they simply won't be moved like a black sheep's wool. So, I mean, how do you go about uh, finding those non-negotiables? Because one of the things you say in the book is, what are your non-negotiables? What are the core values at the very foundation of who you are? Those traits that no matter what someone says or some, how someone influences you cannot be altered, died, or changed. Mm-hmm. Those core values are your black sheep. Finding your black sheep values, the one-of-a-kind combination that makes you distinct from everyone else on the planet, enables you to live your truth, to be your 100% authentic, extraordinary self. And, you know, I think we spend so much time you know, in adolescence trying to fit in and yet we get to adult life, which rewards us for standing out. Uh, So how do you actually discover those values and discover non-negotiables? Because I I think that in my mind, people often have very loose boundaries and they don't even know what these are. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what keeps me in business. (laughs) So thank God for that. Um, But uh, the, the, the truth is that there's a couple of different ways that you can go about it. You can take the long road, um, which would be uh, going back uh, through some therapy and looking over your life and, and going through what Maslow would call uh, peak experiences and looking how these peak experiences shaped your value set that you possess today. Um, that's, that is the uh, difficult road because it requires a bunch of vulnerability, um, a bunch of self-awareness, a bunch of courage, all those sorts of things all wrapped up into one because oftentimes our values are not formed by particularly good experiences, they can be, you know, formed by really difficult, hard experiences that we say we never want to be in that position again. And so drudging up some of those feelings can be uncomfortable at the least. So what what I would say is, you know, what we did when we released the book was we came out with an online assessment that really helped people dip their toe into the values pool, right? It's not going to be the absolute truth, but it's going to start a very important conversation uh, that that needs to happen if you want to truly find out what your non-negotiables are. So our assessment sort of presents you with 125 commonly held personal core values, and it says, go ahead and in a knee-jerk reaction look over these words. If the word resonates with you, go ahead and select it. And so what we know after 5,000 plus people taking this assessment is that the average person selects at least 30 different values that they deem really important to them in their lives. And this is the beginning of the problems is because when there are 30 things that you're telling yourself are incredibly important, you will try to fulfill all of them and inevitably fail which invites feelings of shame and guilt and everything else to the party. And so what we try to do is say, okay, you've got 30, 40, 50 things you selected that were really important. We're going to go ahead and group those together by likeness. And so words like sympathy, empathy, caring for others, that goes in one bucket. Words like achievement, success, accountability, that goes in another bucket. And before you know it, 
all the words that you said were really important are grouped neatly into five different buckets based on likeness. And then you get to look at those buckets and select the one word from each bucket that is your non-negotiable. And that gets you to your initial flock of five black sheep values. Now, what I will tell you is what we have discovered over doing this thousands of times is that even when you get to what you think is the truth, two or three of those flock are going to be 100% accurate and provable. And you can give me 20 different reasons as to why over the course of your life, two or three of them are complete fabricated bullshit. And it is for a variety of reasons. You may have grown up uh, being forced to care for other people's sheep. So you either took care of siblings or an elderly grandparent or a parent or whatever that looks like. So you've been conditioned to actually care for other people's sheep. And it makes it really difficult for you to separate theirs from yours. Uh, and in other cases, uh, you are projecting who you want to be or who somebody told you you should be, but they are indeed not your sheep. And so that's part of the proving stage that I have people go through, which takes several weeks to show that these things actually show up organically in your life on a daily basis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that that, you know, raises a question of, of sort of social programming, right? Because we're all socialized by the environments that we're brought up in. I mean, I was mm-hmm. brought up in an environment in which we were taught that you go to school, you get good grades, you become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, because mm-hmm. we're Indian. That's what Indian people do. Sure. Uh, even if it's not what they want to do in so sure. many cases. Uh, how do you actually get past such deeply embedded social programming? Well, it requires an incredible amount of vulnerability, and and uh, what I talk about in the book is a bone-crushingly honest conversation with yourself. Uh, you know, the, the, we we love to lie to ourselves uh, because it's easier, and so that's why we choose to wing it. Because when we wing it, we can come up with excuses all day long. But the minute that we define these things that we say are non-negotiables, now all of a sudden we've sort of traced the sandbox of which we are going to play. And when we go outside of those uh, walls that we have sort of put around ourselves, uh, it makes us feel bad. And so we either have to come to the realization that indeed one of the things you said was a non-negotiable, in fact, is not, or you are purposefully violating it for whatever particular reason. And we have to sort of take a look at why you would choose to do that. And so, um, you know, it, it, it requires deep investigation over the course of several weeks to see what's real and what's not. Oftentimes people like to get too specific with their values. So they will tell me, look, community, family, and faith are three of my black sheep values. And I have to have a conversation with them. And what we find most of the time is that actually none of them our black sheep values. The black sheep value is connection. And they just gave me three incredibly powerful ways that they experience connection. But when you drill down too far, um, you actually hurt the ability to prove what you say is real. Mm. So one thing I, I wonder, you know, you, I, you mentioned this idea of having a, you know, brutally honest conversation with yourself, which was probably my, my favorite chapter. And, you know, I've been, uh, working on this, this new book idea about sort of, uh, you know, the questionable ideas that often come from sort of our, our world of self-help and positive thinking and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next week we're airing a series on, uh, you know, the cult of personal development, people who have often been in cults. And you know, based on this, do you ever think that self-improvement becomes a form of escapism from dealing with these brutally honest conversations? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes, uh, uh, like alcohol to an alcoholic, right? I mean, it's just, it's what you do to avoid doing the actual work. You just read about it, but you don't actually do it. And that's the, you know, the, I I have to laugh when you come out with a book that talks about discovering the things that matter most to you. And you have conversations with people that have done the work 
and their lives are changed forever. They thank you uh, at a level that is uncomfortable because you literally changed what was possible for them in their life. And then you see the reviews where someone says, there was no applicable information in this book at all. <laughs> and, and, you know, I look at those people and, and, uh, you know, part of me laughs, part of me wants to punch them in the face, part of me wants to tell them to fuck off. And the other part of me is just feel sad that um, they don't actually understand what's necessary to actually live a life of fulfillment. And if you're chasing the wrong things, um, fulfillment only happens by accident or luck. And that is never going to be enough for anybody over the course of their life. Yeah. Well, I think that this is something that I often, you know, a metaphor that I often uh, you know, refer to is this idea between the difference between a compass and a map. And I think so often people look to other people to give them a map mm -hmm. to where they want to go. And, uh, you know, I realize, you know, if you follow somebody else's map, the only place you're going to get to is where they've gone, not right. where you want to go. Sure. Well, not only that, I mean, think of, uh, and I talk about this um, in the audio book version that we sort of did these little side conversations. Um, think about a GPS. You tell your car GPS or your phone GPS while you're in the car where you want to go, you set that destination. And what do we do? We sit there and allow somebody to tell us exactly where we need to go. And when we veer off path because we want to grab a bite to eat or have to go to the bathroom, uh, what does it do? It starts screaming at you, right? What, what, what are you doing? That's not the path. You're not headed, you're not headed that direction. Do you need us to change the, you need us to reroute? You know, is this, did you, what, what's happening? And, and the reason that you want to sort of discover these non-negotiable values is they sort of, they, they act like this GPS, this voice that tells you, wait a minute, time out. You are not headed in the direction that you said you wanted to go. Do you want us to reroute? Do you want to go back to the path? Or are you lying to us that this is in fact the destination that you said that you wanted to get to? Um, and so, you know, in that way, we're used to being told how to go, where to go, every, every point from here to there. And that's the difference between deliberate intention and simply being intentional. Intentional is setting the destination in your GPS. Deliberate intention is knowing every single turn you're going to make to get there. Mm, wow. Okay, so that, that actually makes a perfect segue to talking about this idea of, of why. And I, I love that you actually brought this up because it, you know, for you to challenge sort of a, you know, popular notion of finding your why. To me, I, I love people who will challenge any authority figure on this. But you said you have to discover your what and then choose why. Those rarely change. They're like the roots of the tree. Your how is like the branches that grow in all directions. Your how always changes. Every new opportunity, in fact, every item on your daily agenda is a chance to fulfill your mission through the way that you act. Um, and I think that that goes so counter to what people think. Because I think you know, when people hear this idea of Simon Sinek's Find Your Why, um, again, it takes us back to that whole idea of some sort of prepackaged, you know, formula that will give you a roadmap to where you want to go. And I was very fortunate to have interviewed Simon Sinek and have him walk through my why with me. And he, you know, came to the conclusion, he said, you're obsessed with people who are good at insanely uh, unusual things. And I remember thinking, thanks, Simon, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know, and 10 years later, yeah. When I look back at the body of work I've built at Unmistakable Creative, every single thing I have done since that conversation is a reflection of those exact words. Yes. The question is, are you doing it on purpose? And, and, and that is, you know, so listen, uh, I've met Simon. Uh, I think he's a brilliant man. 
I think it's a great book, but I think there needs to be an asterisk on that cover. Start with why asterisk as long as your why is correct. Um, but most people's why is not correct because you can't get to why without defining your what. Uh, I break it into three areas. You've got your what, your why, and your how. Your what are your values. Your why is your purpose and your how is your mission. And people often confuse mission for values or mission for purpose, but in fact, it doesn't work that way. And so you can't actually start with why. You have to define your non-negotiables. And when you know what those are, so my flock, if you will, is creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, authenticity. I have six, I have an extra, right? And it's not unusual. So many of us have an extra. And so those six things are my flock. Every decision I make gets filtered through those things, but those are my non-negotiable values. My purpose is born out of those values. My purpose is to creatively impact others by authentically providing hope. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it's the activation of my black sheep values that become my purpose. They are in alignment with each other. If you start with why without defining your what, what are the odds that the values actually show up in the purpose statement you've chosen for your life? It's slim and none. And so you have to start with what to choose your why so that they are in alignment with each other. And then your how, that mission, changes every single day, right? People often say, well, as I got older, my, my purpose changed. No, it did not. Your mission changed. How you choose to honor those values changed, but your purpose and your values are static. If somebody says outside of a catastrophic event in your life, your values rarely change. By the time you're in your early twenties, they are pretty much etched in stone. And if that's the case, and you sit there and tell yourself that your values changed, what I would argue is that you never discovered the real value in the first place. <laughs> you assumed that you knew what was real, but doing the work that I've done for years and 5,000 people, I know how much they lie to themselves and I know how much they, what, what they think is real and what is actually real are never the same. And out of those 5,000 people, not once, not once have I ever worked with anyone where the five they started with were the five they ended with. It doesn't work that way. We're not capable of having that sort of self-awareness without some, some work. Um, and, and when life influences you, when family and friends influence you, when society influences you and tells you all these things that you should deem important to you in your life, um, how do you not allow that to affect your choice in one way, shape or form? It's incredibly difficult. And so that's why we have to prove what's real and not just go upon what we think are the actual non-negotiables in our life. Hmm. Well, let's talk about this uh, idea of accountability. You said most of us buck against the idea of being accountable for our own successes and failures, but the reality is that you're held accountable to things all the time. At work, you have to meet deadlines, budgets, goals. Do you think these TPS reports are going to print themselves? <laughs> uh, love, the, love the office space reference, by <laughs> yes. the way. It's kind of funny because I think people who are not old enough probably have no idea what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> the stapler, they told me I could keep my stapler. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I think that one thing that you learn, uh, particularly as an author who is, is, you know, writing a book with a publisher, uh, is that nobody else holds you accountable. You get a book deal and an editor says, okay, great. I'll see you in six months. 
and you're the one who shows up every single day to go and do this thing. Yeah. Why do you think people have such a hard time holding themselves accountable? I mean, their entire business is built around holding people accountable. One of our former guests, Peter Shallard, literally built a company um, that has thousands of customers mm. to do one thing, hold them accountable. So this, lit, I mean, literally this thought just came into my mind and it's because I had a conversation with, with a friend um, recently over this. Uh, what I want to say is this. We often are forced to have accountability without authority. And that presents a very difficult predicament. We are expected to be accountable. We are not given authority to make decisions. And that happens a lot at work, right? You're held accountable, but you have no authority. And um, the higher you get, the even when you think your your authority grows, you, you find that in most cases, it's still the same scenario. And so accountability without authority um, becomes sort of your your daily routine. And so when it comes to your own life, you have to sort of reprogram yourself to understand that you are you are, have accountability with total authority. It's your life. You are the one who makes the decisions, but we are so not used to that being the case that um, when you spend eight, 10 hours a day at work uh, with accountability with no authority, it just trickles into your your personal life and and causes all kinds of problems. Yeah. Well, um, I'm so glad you brought up, uh, you know, this idea of decisions because <clears throat> you talked extensively about making decisions. But I think the thing that struck me most uh, that you said about decisions is allowing your emotions to lead the decision making process. It's like asking your drunk uncle to give the blessing at Thanksgiving dinner. Dangerous feelings change constantly and thus should not be the sole driver of decisions. When you let that happen, you're much more likely to make catastrophically bad decisions. And I think that this is something that so many of us learned the hard way. Uh, you know, like I, I recently had a, a change in my business and, you know, it was a big change. And my roommate said, are you upset? And I said, dude, I'm like, I have investors and other people that I'm held accountable. I don't to, held accountable to, I, yeah. I don't have the luxury mm -hmm. to wallow in my misery over this. I have to be objective about it. Yeah. Um, but that's also something that I've learned with time. Uh, so talk to me about how we become less emotional and more objective in the process of making important decisions. Well, uh, when you know what your actual non-negotiable values are, um, they serve as a litmus test, right? So you can ask yourself objectively, is what you're upset about right now a direct violation of one of these five things? If the answer is yes, then you know exactly what it's violating and how to proceed. If it is not one of those things, then you can just let it go. Um, not saying it's easy, but you can make that decision and choice to let it go. I am a very visual person, uh, especially on the creative side for me, I have to visualize things in order to really get it into context. And so in my brain, when it comes to decisions, there is a tug of war going on. On one side of the tug of war are my black sheep values. And on the other side of the tug of war are my feelings or emotions. And they are in this battle, right? And you know, if you've ever had a tug of a true tug of war fight in the middle, they tie this ribbon, right? And you're, you have to pull the ribbon over the line in order to win. And the, the thing that I really discovered through the research of the book is that if you're, if you're thinking through living a life that honors your values, you would think that you want your values to win that tug of war all the time. 
And, and what I discovered was that's actually not the case. Um, our feelings and emotions are monsters if you allow them to be, and they are incredibly powerful and can overwhelm your best intentions of honoring a value if you get yourself worked up enough. And so in reality, you don't want either side to win the tug of war. You want a healthy tension between the two. So you want to make sure that you are making decisions that are born out of these non-negotiable values. But at the same time, you're acknowledging how you feel about what's happening in that moment so that you're not ignoring it. When we ignore feelings, we piss them off and they get incredibly hard to control. When we acknowledge that this is how we're feeling, it allows us to sort of diffuse that situation a bit and allows us to keep the healthy tension between our values and our feelings or emotions. And when you do that, you find that you're able to stay in the present and make decisions where you need to make them, which is now, not in the future or in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I wonder about is what causes people to compromise on their supposedly non-negotiable values? Because I think all of us have done that at one time or another. And, and of course, we end up regretting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a couple of reasons for compromise, right? So I have had to change how I feel. I, I, I am, as we talked earlier, growing up in a, in a culture of win, 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 win. Um, compromise is a loss in my column, right? I, I, I am not, I can't look at it any other way. Um, until, until I started to understand that rather than view something as compromising, can it, can I instead, instead of giving something up to meet someone in the middle, can I take one of my non-negotiable values and lean into it and honor that to accomplish the same thing. And what I have found um, indisputably is that that's possible every single time. And so when that is the case, rather than feeling like I have to give something up, instead I actually lean in and feed my sheep in a very specific way that allows me to feel like, in fact, I maintained control and I honored this thing that matters most to me that I'm telling myself that this is one of my non-negotiables. And by actually honoring it, I was able to meet somebody halfway. Um, that changed my perspective and made me a much better coworker uh, in, in different areas, a much better collaborator, no matter what I was doing, was that instead of feeling like I had to give something up, I started leaning into feeding these sheep with deliberate intention. And it made me a far easier person to work with. Mm. So- you know, as somebody who has this, you know, insatiable drive to win, you might be the the person who could give me an answer to this question, which I've asked and not quite gotten an answer that satisfied me. How does somebody who is so driven to achieve find a balance between fulfillment and ambition? Because I feel like we can have ambition without fulfillment. We can have, you know, and if you have no ambition, you get complacency. Because I was I was writing about this yesterday; it's fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have ambition without fulfillment, no matter what you accomplish, you'll never be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Is that a bad thing? Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think that it can be if you constantly see your life as missing something that you don't have. Mm. So, you know, I, a, a couple of things. One, I would say, you know, go, going through this this loss of our son, 
um, you know, the, my wife and I have had a few conversations about where we're at, how we're feeling. Um, and, and the truth is I'm sad all the time. I'm not sad in spurts. I am sad all the time and I just mask it or I learn to cope or I figure out another way to deal or distract myself. Um, you know, I've heard there was, I, there was a movie I watched once. I can't remember what it was, but the, about being angry and how to control anger. It, it, the, the key was to just accept that you're angry all the time. <laughs> um, and in, in that same light, when it comes to winning, when it comes to that drive, um, remember, it's not about whether I win. It's about my desire to win. And by feeding these values in a very specific, deliberate way, um, I'm constantly blown away by what I think is possible. And so rather than focus on a result, which I used to do for, for decades, I did, right? I just want to achieve this level. I want to make this much money. I want to have this title. I wanted, there was always a tangible end to my game. I stopped doing that. And my only, my only goal is to honor these things that matter most to me, to the greatest extent that I can. And if it's true, what I have discovered is that what I thought was possible is often just scratching the surface. And I actually was limiting myself without even knowing it. And so when it comes to this idea of fulfillment, the fulfillment comes from honoring the value, not from achieving anything. Hmm. Wow. So um, I want to finish with two final questions. Um, and I think you, you really brought it full circle beautifully here by talking about what you think is possible. Uh, I had this mentor, Greg, who has been a guest here multiple times, and I've referenced this conversation before, but he said that so often people focus exclusively on the possibility of achieving something and completely ignore the probability of their success at something. And as a result, they chase, you know, sort of false horizons and unrealistic ambitions. Um, and given your sort of background in sports, uh, you know, given your background with this book, what, what is your view on that? And then do you think that's the case? Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. Uh, you know, I, again, if we, if we're looking too far, so, so one of the challenges I think, especially with creatives is we have a tendency to look too far in the future. Um, I've had to continually train myself to recalibrate, <laughs> um, and, uh, and remind myself the only place I can make decisions is in the present. And so if I start thinking out too far, um, I find myself projecting what could happen, which hasn't actually happened. <laughs> so I am, I am allowing the decisions in my thought process to be dictated by a forecast. Uh, you know, I'm not a soothsayer. I have no idea what is actually going to happen, but I find myself being distracted by trying to think out too far. So uh, this, this idea of potential versus probability, um, you know, I think the probability helps us remain in the present about what you're actually accomplishing right now, as opposed to being worried a little too much about what could be or how successful something could be. Um, it just, for me, if you focus on the present, 
not only does it allow you to make decisions that will have an immediate impact on what it is you're doing, but it stops you from drifting to the past or the future, right? In the book, I talk about uh, this this quote from Lao Tzu that that I use as sort of my emotional litmus test at any at any moment. And and Lao Tzu had said, uh, if you are anxious, you're living in the future. If you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're at peace, you're living in the future or in in the present. And so um, I use that to help me define what I am feeling. If I am very anxious about something, chances are I am forecasting out a predicted outcome that has not happened. If I am really upset or depressed about something, it's because I'm um, being overwhelmed by feelings of a decision that was already made or something that already happened that I can't change. And I have to pull myself from the past and keep myself from moving too far into the future if I want any hope of experiencing peace uh, and fulfillment now. <laughs> and so that to me is a constant battle. That is a question that I ask myself several times every day. Wow. Well, um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, it's owning that original creation that you are. Um, I am a huge proponent of unique contribution and unique contribution is impossible if you don't know who you are. Uh, I I've had this conversation with many creatives, whether they're photographers or writers or musicians or artists. Um, you know, I, I, I said this to a, a group of a couple thousand photographers, I said, if you don't know what your flock of five black sheep values are, you've never taken an original photo your entire life. You've only given me a reflection of what matters to someone else. And that is that lens that people need to understand. If you want to be unmistakable, you have to own these non-negotiables because it's through those non-negotiables that you provide that unique contribution that only you can bring and no one else. Wow. Um, I can see now why Jeffrey referred you as a guest. Uh, <laughs> I love this that has guy. Been Jeffrey's absolutely phenomenal. Wow. Uh, you have just been inspiring, thought provoking, um, just beautiful. Um, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and sharing your insights with our uh, listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your book and everything else that you're up to? Best place is everywhere on social media. It's just Brant Menswar, B R A N T M E N S W A R dot com uh, or at Brant Menswar at any of the social handles is where you'll find me. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.